Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that so sick of it all. I feel like I could cry. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 50, Tyrannosaur, recorded St. Patrick's Day. It's March 17th. I don't know what people say on St. Patrick's Day. Top of the day to you. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. And you can check out his incredible new album, Charlemagne, on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song Toucans. And our outro is from Shelter Dog. Boy, this new album is awesome. I have some corrections. I misquoted Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. The actual quote is, we're actors. We're the opposite of people. Uh, and by getting that wrong, I was sequestered to life in a box. But life in a box is better than no life at all, I expect. Uh, way back when I started this show, I started calling graphics and extra textual inclusions as metatextual, which they are not. Metatextual inclusions in a, in a novel would be, you know, if the book started suddenly talking about itself, which this novel does not do. Uh, and a really great example of something being metatextual is if you check out uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Amazing stuff in there. It's also helpful if you're schizophrenic as you're reading it, but uh, don't take my word for it. Uh, but when I'm calling like diagrams and graphs and computer screens metatextual, I'm, I'm completely wrong, and I'm sorry about that. It's like multi-textual, perhaps that's a better word? I'm not sure. In any case, it's, it's including a text that's not necessarily part of the novel, and that's what I'm referring to. Oh, and I was wrong when I interpreted when my boss said, we haven't raised our prices in years, as actually things being the same prices as they were last year. And apparently things are sometimes $5 more, and I should have noticed that. Uh, let's hope it doesn't cost me $5 later when the bills come due. Anyhow, that's neither here nor there. Dinosaur news. All right, our first news story comes from a book that dates back to 1953. So this isn't news, but uh, it's, it's relative to our chapter. Fossil reptiles from Mongolia and Kansu regales us with the reports from the scientific expedition to the northwestern provinces of China under the leadership of Dr. Sven Hedin during the Sino-Swedish expedition. During the winter and early spring of 1929 to 1930, the party of the Sino-Swedish expedition to which the author belonged passed through Inner Mongolia and had a chance to collect some vertebrate remains in badlands of late Mesozoic age. Later, in August 1930 and May 1931, the collections were made in three Mesozoic badlands in the western Kansu. Paired with some of the material brought back by American expeditions, what they found was, quote, rather poor, but a thorough examination has disclosed some 15 different species of dinosaurs, several of which belong to new interesting species, says the introduction to the book. Further, there are some turtles, the Mesozoic ones representing five genera, or genera, of remains of other archosaurs, there are only two tooth fragments of crocodiles, as most of the material is too scanty to contribute much to the general knowledge of the larger groups to which it belongs, it has been thought preferable to treat the remains from the different localities separately. And they go on to suggest they found all kinds of stuff, including two species of microceratops. There's microceratops gobiensis, uh, which they describe on page 34 of their book, and uh, microceratops salsidens. <laughs> I can't quite get access to this old book, although although many of the details from it on all the damn turtles that they found is available. I can find that if I wanted to, but we're not talking about turtles. I did find a few comments on the discovery and naming of microceratops in the book's summary on page 103. Quote, three species were recognized in the material, one of which is probably identical to Protoceratops andrewsi, described by Granger and Gregory. The other two are new and undoubtedly belong to another genus that has been called microceratops, the type M. gobiensis comes from the Sondaline Kuduk in Mongolia. 
they say on page 34, and the finds comprise several specimens of the axis, some of them with attached atlas, and the atlas and axis are bones in your neck that help you keep your head on a swivel, and it is evident that the latter was not reduced as in leptoceratops and protoceratops, which originate a line of evolution leading to the total disappearance of the atlas. The atlas, in microceratops, is instead enlarged and carries at least two-thirds of the bowl-shaped articular surface for the occipital condyle. <laughs> Of microceratops saucidins from the Chiayuquan, a fairly complete hindfoot is also known, and this, as well as some skeletal bones from Sondaline Kuduk, agree with leptoceratops, though they are more slender, and as in leptoceratops, the terminal phalanges are rounded, almost claw-like, and quite different from the broad, flattened hooves in protoceratops. Microceratops and leptoceratops are each the most primitive known member of its evolutionary line at that point, and later members of the microceratops line are not known at that point in 1953. The second paper is when microceratops got its name changed. Recall, Jurassic Park came out in 1990, and the paper re-described uh, microceratops in 2009. The paper, uh, the paper called Two Ornithischian Dinosaurs Renamed, Microceratops Bolin, 1953, and Diceratops Lull, 1905, took the time to reveal, oops, these dinosaur names are already occupied by insects, and we discussed this back in the uh, in the introduction. Not only that, but similar insects. So a Diceratops forester and Microceratops serig are both types of Hymenoptera. These are wasps. Therefore, says the paper, quote, the name of the Ceratopsian dinosaur Diceratops lull, from 1905, from the late Cretaceous of the United States is a junior homonym of the Hymenoptera Diceratops forester, described in 1868. The paper proposes to rename Diceratops, which means two-horned face, to Diceratus, which means two horns. You lose the ops, which means face. By the exact same logic, Microceratops, which means small horn face, was converted into Microceratus, which means small horns. And to this day, Microceratus has been accepted as a name for this critter, which jumps about in Jurassic Park's trees above the jungle river. So what is Microceratops like? It is known from fragment, fragmentary jaws and skeletal bits and some teeth, which extrapolated out suggest a critter that was about 30 inches long. It has slender and lengthy hind limbs, suggesting this may have been a bipedal animal that was capable of running on its hind legs. Its unusually long forelimbs may have been used when walking, perhaps as uh, at a slower pace or on all fours. It may have been a very basal protoceratopsid, but it was hornless and would have had a very undeveloped necked frill, and animals like Microceratus would have shown the very earliest developments of the fusion of the first several neck vertebrae, which would come in handy to support the increasingly heavy heads of future ceratopsians. You can imagine the big horns and the big neck frills. So when picturing these guys in the novel, imagine them as spindly, lightly built beaked animals with very lightly developed neck frill, if any at all. All right, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, let me introduce you to this week's special guest. Yeah, use me and abuse me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to introduce my guest today. He is an alumnus of New Mexico Tech and is a state paleontologist of Utah and the Utah Geological Survey, as well as the namer of many dinosaurs, including the incredible Utah raptor. It's Dr. Jim Kirkland. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> so uh, Jim and I both met in prison. He was in block A and I was in D block and we conspired over a series of months, the perfect escape. And after ages of careful planning, we fashioned a makeshift shiv out of a makeshift hairbrush that we'd fashioned out of a perfectly good pickaxe and used it to bore away through the cinder block walls of the prison and then fled into the San Francisco Bay, swam the treacherous and freezing waters back to shore and evaded the canine units for years. And today, Jim and I are proud to announce that we're the first confirmed escape from Alcatraz. So that's another feather in your cap. 
Yeah, well, you got with the A team, you know, and getting someone who's an over qualified ditch digger uh, involved made a lot of sense. That's right. Your your field work came in very handy when it came to excavating a wall to get out. <laughs> So, speaking of narrow escapes in the novel Jurassic Park, we get a little dribbly bit of Alan Grant's backstory. And one of it, uh, one of his misadventures while he's out in the field is uh, he had been lost in the Badlands for four days when a cliff gave way beneath him and his truck fell a hundred feet into a ravine. He breaks his right leg. He had no water and he had to walk back on a broken leg to, I guess, civilization. You spent years out in the Badlands. Have you had any adventures or misadventures that compare to being out in the deserts and stuff like that, similar to that? Well, I stupidly cliffed myself out a couple times. Oh, no. Which uh, is no fun, because I, I actually have a certain amount of fear of heights. Mm-hmm. And my colleagues have worked with me in the field know. But if there's a fossil up there, dang, <laughs> I'll give it a good shot. <laughs> That's, so what are the odds? Do you go off-roading? Like, would you take a truck into these badlands where you might fall 100 feet off a ravine? Like, Generally, what you're doing is you're driving, you know, roads in the backcountry. you got to mm-hmm. four-wheel drive. I mean, and sometimes, you know, you have to hike miles from the nearest place you can take a vehicle. But there are now laws mm-hmm. about driving off the road. Uh, you know, there are tracks that, on public lands that you can drive on, and then you'll see old tracks with signs saying, you know, this road is illegal now. <laughs> and generally, at those points, you start hiking. And uh, sometimes you have to hike miles in. The most One of our great dinosaur hunters in Utah, Mike Getty, once proposed the three-mile limit mm. for digging big dinosaurs, that if the dinosaur is more than three miles from where you could drive, <laughs> uh, basically it was, you know, it was beyond reach without a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And it really works out that way. you got to carry out your water plaster, you know, grab these skeletons, a big skeleton, you know, you're not going to drag a thousand pound block no. you know, miles up and down through canyons and mesas. So for a guy to, to have to walk back for four days, how far into the interior of the state does one have to go to require a four day walk back? I guess the road you just came back on. Well, Grand Staircase, there, there's areas out there uh, down in southern Utah, you know, this is an area with like one of the most complete upper Cretaceous records in North America. It, it's really a remarkable area, but it's one of the most isolated areas. Basically, there was no good way to drive in mm-hmm. to many of these dinosaur beds until they put the bridge in at Glen Canyon Dam, you know, so you could cross over from Arizona into southern Utah. And then the same thing coming in from the north. I mean, there's a road, there's like one road that covers the main dinosaur beds there, goes across the uh, Kaparowitz Plateau. And that, you know, that drive by itself is seven hours of dirt road. And sometimes you can do it easily. Other times <laughs> you'll find out, oops, something's washed out. I got to turn around. Do, do you go out in teams? Like, is it common to go for somebody, especially a pro, to be out there by themselves? Is that... Yeah, we we generally do team, you know, work uh, because, you know, we got to carry a lot of equipment to the site. We set up long-term camps uh, and and we bring in a lot of volunteers. I mean, you know, because, you know, when you're digging, you know, something is bigger than a car out of the (laughs) ground using uh, nothing more than a shovel. And and when you get close, dental tools and brushes, uh, it it takes a team of people that, know enough not to hurt the resource mm-hmm. uh 
uh, and you try to do something like that by yourself, it's uh, you know, it's pretty limiting. You, you know, we, we'll get a backboard like they use when someone's injured in the field and strap a few hundred pound block of fossils on top of it. And then, you know, four or five people grabbing the handles will walk it out a couple miles. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a real effort. We both prefer Right now, I'm old enough that I've got some major sites near roads. <laughs> the ones I'm focusing on now. Yeah, but uh, you know, we have we have some pretty remote sites. I mean, one of the first the first highway to cross Utah, you know, Interstate 70, finally got through the San Rafael Swell in the 70s. You know, I mean, you know, people say, well, why don't you have the depth of history of dinosaur discovery as Wyoming or Montana? Well, they had the trains, <laughs> and that's where a lot of the cattle ranching occurred up there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, trains went right past Como Bluff in Wyoming, and, and there was just nothing down here. And a lot of our best dinosaur country, uh, you know, down in this area is now national parks, but it's, you know, not a lot of vegetation. So homesteading was done, you know, really along these river valleys, in our big rivers like the Colorado or in deep canyons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, another thing that happens in, in on the dig site, so Grant is in Montana. Maybe Utah is a little bit different. Just a touch. <laughs> Just a touch. But So they measure their time in cases of beer. Have you been in a, uh, in, in a field or a camp where there's been an unorthodox measurement of time? Like measuring things in a case of beer sounds like something Crichton must have heard from somebody and said, ah, that's a fun detail that really makes this seem like an authentic representation of paleontology. Is that something that's you've ever you seen or heard? this is Utah. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, Utah <laughs> is different from Montana. <laughs> but uh, now the country, you know, you, you, bring, you know, when you bring it out, volunteers, you know, we have a great diversity of people from all over the world that mm-hmm. come out and have dug with us in this field seasons over the over the years. And, of course, everyone has different uh, field habits uh, and whatnot. When we go out, you know, we set up a, a good uh, bathroom area, mm. you know, isolated. But, you know, you have a sit-down toilet, and, you know, that's pretty candy after a few weeks. Uh, <laughs> we always tell people... We don't want you just digging pits out there because this is an erosional area mm. and you find fossils. And anything that goes into the surface of the ground is eventually going to come back up. So we like to carry all our waste out of a big kitchen area, set up portable garages, uh, having a place. And, you know, Utah gets pretty toasty. Mm. I've been out when it's 117 working with our teams. And having shade over your community camp area permanently, pretty much, with these portable garages keeps the ground from heating up and reflecting back on you. Okay. And actually, it it's incredible what shade will do to improve camp life when you're out in a place where there's not a plant higher than your knees anywhere to be seen. Mm-hmm. It makes a good point. Like, the, the, the novel makes a point about how the Hammond Foundation would only sponsor digs that were at northern latitudes because there is some theory that the, the fossils would somehow retain some of their DNA if they hadn't become too hot yet which is a little goofy when you look at like the spans of tens of millions of years that they, somehow it had never been hot. But also, like right in the book, in Montana, it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I don't know how much cooler that is to something that would kill DNA. Anyhow, it, the whole thing is far Oh, yeah, no, you know, that's all fantasy. <laughs> but yeah, it, know, it's plenty hot in Utah, yeah. plenty hot in Montana. Yeah. You know, we haven't got any more, uh, you know, any DNA out of the bones yet. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever they've done it, it turns out to be contamination, 
from fungi and bacteria because there's organic stuff in bones mm -hmm. you know and, and you know we extract collagen and other larger more stable organic compounds but uh, dna is a very fragile compound and uh, to get intact dna and you know to build a dinosaur would take a very large amount of intact dna mm -hmm. it had to be an extraordinary out. preservational situation that i don't think that we've uh, yeah, reported you know, we on yet. <laughs> there's no frozen dinosaurs <laughs> you know, the planet got real warm in between dinosaurs going extinct and the uh, you know more recent ice ages mm -hmm. uh, we have the paleocene you know, eocene boundary thermal maximum you know and that was that was real hot time in our planet's history probably comparable to uh, the carboniferous oh really uh, and uh, we had a lot of mammals uh, go out, and really that's what helped kickstart the modern mammalian faunas that we see today. It was a pretty big deal. Hmm. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of history in between the last dinosaurs uh, and the first people. You know, and, you know, more chances to lose things than to gain things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think um, another thing that comes up with, with, uh, with field work and with Alan Grant that maybe you can shed some light on is that uh, in the film, anyhow, but this isn't so much in the book that uh, when they're recruiting consultants to come to the Island to, to review Hammond's uh, Jurassic park, uh, they say, Oh, you'll never get grant to leave his field work. Uh, he's like me he's a digger, but there's this idea that uh, he wants to spend all of his time out in the badlands. And that is where the science is done. Whereas it would appear that like, that's where you get the specimen, but the science is done. Maybe you can tell me. So once you get the bones extracted and you become, you know, interpreting the fossils, are you doing that like uh, in a lab in your living room at the museum? Where do you where does where does the the looking at things? Oh, we do we do that at the museum. Okay, you know, and, you know. Uh, but also we have to travel. This I I work my specialty. Of course, everybody knows me for Utah Raptor. Mm -hmm. The group I actually really love working on are the ankylosaurs. You know, the armored tanks. The puzzle of like where do all these things go uh, <laughs> to me is just a lot of fun, and we you know real you know we got over like eighty taxa now we got incredible diversity of these things, you know when you work on this stuff you got to compare the material, so I've looked at material from Russia, China, Mongolia, Europe, you know I've been all over the planet looking at this stuff because the literature you know can lead you astray, you know you know, say a picture's worth a thousand words. A picture with the shading a little bit off can make you say, oh, I'm seeing a bump here. And I've mm -hmm. seen this happen. Uh, I see a bump here. That's important. And actually, the bump is, is nothing. You know, yeah. it's just because the light hit it a low, low thing hard. It made the thing look larger. You know? well, sure, I, yeah. really, I always like yeah. to say I like to fondle my fossils uh, that <laughs> I'm comparing with my new specimens. All my mistakes I've made in my career is from interpreting things just from the literature and mm -hmm. mis, you know, misinterpreting. Sure. Yeah, I, can, I think we can all relate to that picture of the uh, that face in the moon, just the way the, the light was hitting it. And it's, oh, it's obviously uh, somebody built a face on the moon. There's four, uh, or is it Mars? I don't remember where it's from, but... Oh, a Mars, yeah. yeah the, <laughs> the face the on face, the Mars, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, that's, and that's the kind of stuff you can, you know, people, you know, the stuff people bring into our lab. Yeah. You know, it's like ridiculous, you know. You know, we had a guy, you know, a guy brings in a heart or a guy brings in some agate with a, you know, a tube coming off it. Oh, it's a fossilized uh, blood vessel of a dinosaur. 
you know, will you give me ninety thousand dollars for it? You know, yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, you know. And these are sometimes people with PhDs, mm-hmm. you know, you know, but in other fields. But fair, I I know statistics really really well, so I know paleontology really really well. It's you know, it's all a different way of thinking. I always like to tell people we all have. You know, the way our minds work are different. There are mm-hmm. geometric thinkers, there's algebraic thinkers, there's people that are have superpowers in uh, relating to people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and knowing people and, you know, remembering every person they've ever met, mm-hmm. you know, and that's another, you know, type of intelligence that's significant. And there are all these different intelligences, you know, among humanity. And unfortunately, we ju- we tend to judge toward one thing which is sad because if we use all the different skills people have, bring them together on a topic, which happens in paleo a lot. Oh, yeah. You know, we're yeah, very yeah. collaborative. We have to be. You know, we end up coming to a much more significant conclusion than one person working on the same project. Mm-hmm. You know, and generally, the, the single people that are, you know, stamping out their, their career in paleo from their armchair in their living room tend to get pretty well isolated mm-hmm. from the rest of the eventually that's interesting yeah because there's obviously being able to interpret bones isn't the same as interpreting uh feathers it's not the same as this the math that must go into like the statistical analysis and all those things the computer programming geology geochemistry i work a lot with geochemists Mm -hmm. you know because we get signals on you know what the atmospheric oxygen and carbon uh isotope ratios were you know, from bones and from, you know, the enamel of dinosaur teeth. You know, you are what you drink. You know, we can look at water chemistry and, and detect as the teeth grow, is there evidence for a spring snow melt? Mm-hmm. Okay. And we can tell you when the nearby mountain range had snow and when it didn't have snow on it. Oh, wow. By looking at the enamel of dinosaur teeth. There, there's some remarkable things we can do. And, of course, the press doesn't jump on that as much. But we can get some serious handles on, on climate and our radiometric dating is so much better than it used to be. You know, we've got rocks. We're getting ready to publish a paper right now on a, a lower Jurassic Lake sequence. It's, you know, of great significance. And our date is within, you know, 18,000 years plus or minus. And this is over 115 million years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, we have that kind of accuracy. The KT boundary, when, you know, the meteor hit, we know that within a few thousand years, you know, of when that happened now, because of the, the new techniques, you know, where they actually count atoms and these things <laughs> on a bunch of different individual little microscopic crystals to show, you know, you know, how these, these radioactive elements are breaking down. It, it's really remarkable. I just wish it didn't cost so much money. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. need a mass spectrometer. You need, you need a lot of millions of dollars in equipment to do it. Which I don't have in my lab, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a book called, it's like uh, Architects of Eternity. And I thought it was going to be a lot more about dinosaurs. It wasn't. But it was mostly about, uh, generally speaking, different types of spectrometers that uh, <laughs> people kept developing to see how old something was. And so they were able to further specify the age of something by using either different filters or perspectives. or But basically, it was just crank whatever you got into this this new spectrometer and we'll get a better better reading. But you make a great point. What kind of interesting devices are there that, that people are using to look at fossils in a new way that are presenting, you're saying, like isotopic information, atomic information that are, are important? Or, or, or even visualizing. Mm-hmm. You know, with our Utah Raptor, you know, mega block, 
we now are pretty comfortable. We have in the, what I used to always consider the two-year-old group of animals, because there's a, clearly a growth series in there. But in the two-year-old group, there are definitely two kinds of raptor, two kinds of dromaeosaur. One that's adult and about the size of a velociraptor, and one that's clearly much more immature, because we've got different pelvae, and, you know, the immature ones, are they're not fused up at all, mm-hmm. and the mature ones are very fused up. And we have skulls for this new animal. We're now, you know, pretty comfortable with. But to describe these things, what we want to do is take out sections. This is a real slow process. And bring them all the way to Connecticut, to Yale, so we can have these things visualized using their, they've got a multi-million dollar 3D uh, micro CT scanner that will take things up to over a foot in diameter. Okay. And yeah. there's none of those in the Utah area. You know, I know no one that has it <laughs> or the people that can process it. But there's a team at Yale, and basically we're collaborating. That's why we have to collaborate. They have this multi-million dollar piece of equipment that allow us to dismantle these skulls that have fallen apart in this site so we can rebuild them digitally and then 3D print them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is, you know, and the, the specimens in the rock still will be what gets curated uh, long term because it's the safest way to treat some of these fossils. Uh, you know, we'll get a lot of the rock off them. You know, you can see, you know, whole maxillas and all the teeth and, you know, beautiful stuff. But to get into the details of the brain case and whatnot, we need to look at these things microscopically with these micro CT scanners. And we're going to be able to see subcellular details in these bones. It's really exciting. I don't do it. <laughs> Got to collaborate. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way to, yeah, bring in all the different literacies. And, and, and I'm sure you make good friendships and stuff like that as well, working in, in interesting, exciting ways, making discoveries together. It must be really unifying as a, as a team. That's a great profession that way. Mm-hmm. I always like to say, you know, vertebrate paleo, uh, you know, we're all in a big family. And geology in general is like this. You know, we, we may be dysfunctional. <laughs> we're <a big> family. <laughs> Fair enough. So one of the, the interesting things that uh, when I was looking up, uh, I think that we could talk about um, is is naming dinosaurs. I've got a couple here that you've had a hand in uh, helping give a name to. We've got Ned Colbertia, Gastonia, mm-hmm. and Martha Raptor. All of these dinosaurs have something in common. They seem to be the names of people that you've, you've met, your peers, your colleagues, and stuff like that. Uh, you got to put their names into the dinosaur. That's kind of neat. So there's Ned Colbert or Edward. Uh, what? Maybe you could tell us who well, Edward H. Colbert, yeah. who was a mentor of mine in my younger days, wrote all the books I read as a kid during the 50s, early yeah. 60s. The only one doing serious you know, dinosaur books. They're, they're pretty antiquated now. But uh, you know, Ned was, was all, really one of the main people holding the flag for dinosaur paleo being worthy of study. And he trained greats like John Ostrom and Dale Russell, you know, Walter Coombs. He had, he had a real history of training the next generation, the people that set off the dinosaur revolution. And they, in turn, took it even further, training Bob Bakker, Jack Horner, and people like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're all on the shoulders of giants even though some people don't want to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And yeah, certainly uh, Ostrom, Bacher, and Horner are specifically named in Jurassic Park as some of those people. So oh, Ned, certainly. Dr. Colbert's got, certainly, he's the guy behind them. That's kind of neat and, and important. Oh, yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, there's, you know, by history, always, you know, like this this hand, you know, is only a few away from Darwin. You know? 
Of course, I shook, shook uh, Ned Colbert's hand multiple times. His major professor was uh, Osborne at the American Museum. Uh, Osborne was trained under uh, Cope, you know, and Marsh. You know, Marsh met Darwin, you know, and Osborne might have met Darwin as well. Hmm. Uh, but I know Marsh did. So it's like, you know, three handshakes away from Darwin, you know, even though we're, you know, 100 plus years hmm. away from Darwin. I think we're all uh, about seven uh, handshakes from Genghis Khan. Is that the, the yeah something like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's cool. And so, and then Robert Gaston was uh, he worked on papers with you? Is that am I reading it? Yeah, right? Rob. Rob discovered the the Gaston site, mm -hmm. and uh, he was an art major at the University of uh, New Mexico, and spent his summers working at a rock shop in Moab, Utah and would go out patrolling and looking for things. And he found these fossils uh, coming down off of this one big ridge. And within that was the hips of a armored dinosaur, which really excited me, a thing, a polycanthine ankylosaur, mm -hmm. previously only known in Europe. And it had all the armor preserved in place over the hips. It was, you know, it just got me real excited. And while we were digging those animals up, and there's like six of them in this site, we also found the first uh, associated remains of a Utah raptor. Oh. And initially, we named the giant claw, but we now know all the bones. We're redescribing the material, and all the bones in that site are one from one individual. And that'll expand our knowledge base for the type of Utah raptor, and then we can expand that to uh, the work we're doing with this big bone bed. You know, with all these different individuals. Mm. You know, we really have to be real clear. What is Utah Raptor? <laughs> you, know, you can't call something the same thing without having characters right. that are unique to that animal that you can identify. So what's the most uh, diagnostic fossil on a Utah Raptor that you're looking for? Things like the maxilla, of course, the big claw. But we have a new one with a big claw. Mm -hmm. It's by 10 years later. The claw's almost identical. Mm. Uh, from a site we're going to open up uh, this spring, reopen this spring and start working on seriously and hopefully find more than just the claw because that claw is the exact same size of the, the first big claw we had at utah raptor and much better preserved it's okay. perfect. got crack in it you know it's a lovely thing uh but where's the rest of the animal and mm -hmm. being 10 years later because of new radiometric dating we now know that you know there's no dinosaur that we can show existed as a say a genus or even a, a species for more than you know a million years you know dinosaurs turn over as rapidly as mammals except you have to really have a lot of the animal to identify it you know mammals mm -hmm. we can id with their you know a single tooth you know <laughs> we can id mammals because the teeth change in such distinctive ways dinosaurs don't change like that you know the teeth you know a whole family of dinosaurs are going to have teeth that are pretty similar to each other mm. so you've got to look at the skull bones the total animal which slows the process down, but we're building it up. I mean, we're getting these incredible animals. Uh, you know, the work they're doing in uh, Canada, down in southern Utah in the Grand Staircase, where we have really well-dated sequences of continuous dinosaurs, we're able to see how these things change. And, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. They change rapidly. So even though, you know, now when we get something new, we got to be careful about just lumping it into something we've already had. Because mm -hmm. most of the time we're wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> time reveals all your mistakes, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, it does. I mean, it's, you know, it's, 
You know, you, you got to have a thick skin in this profession. You know, there are people that take such joy. I got a mistake that, you know, X person made. Mm. And it's like, whoopee do. I mean, <laughs> you know, it was never, you know, infallibility was never part of having a degree in paleontology. That's right. Good point. Good point. Uh, so another one here, Martha Raptor, it looks like it was named after Martha Hayden. Uh, she sounded yeah. like she wasn't a paleontologist per se, but she was making yeah, dinosaurs fun. Yeah, she's the paleo assistant yeah. uh, for the Utah Geologic Survey. I'm her third state paleontologist that she's worked with. You know, she uses us up and tosses us aside, gets a new one. <laughs> uh, but as it turns out, we went to the same high school in Massachusetts. Oh, right on. And I first met her, we were actually in an ecology club together and started recycling in our town in Massachusetts back in the you know, early, early 70s. And, you know, there's a picture of my yearbook with she's in it, you know, and I can't even recognize her in the picture. But, yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, we met on the Utah Raptor site, you know, the Gaston Quarry, because it was on state land. She worked for the Penn State paleontologist. And she comes marching over the hill and is wagging her finger at me. He's like, you went to Marshfield High School. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, right on. Well, that's how you get your, your name on a dinosaur, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, she's been indispensable in paleontology in Utah. See, she's a genius with humans. She knows huh? everybody that's ever worked in our state. She doesn't forget anybody. And that has turned out to be such an important piece of information because I came in, you know, I didn't know the history of all these people that went before me within our state. Sure. And Martha, you know, right at her fingertips knows all this stuff. Wow. And has brought me up to speed to a fair degree <laughs> over, over 23 years as a state paleontologist. Oh, cool. Well, she deserves a dinosaur then. That's awesome. Oh, she does. She found the site, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And then it looks like, so now here's another one that's maybe, war, I don't know, you tell me. So Ned Colberti, is, it looks like its specific name is Justin Hoffman I. Yes. But this was. I in... was uh, <laughs> at the point that that, when I was working on that stuff, where I was working with Dynamation International Society, mm -hmm. which was a nonprofit organization set up by the Dynamation International Corp. that built the robot dinosaurs that were so big yeah. uh, back in the late 80s and 90s. And basically, you know, I was told, you've got to raise some money or we're going to have to lay you off. And Discovery Card uh, approached me and says, uh, we'll give you $25,000 if you'll name a dinosaur after some kid that writes an essay, you know, the winning essay about dinosaurs. And I said, well, that's another year where I'm going to be able to feed my kids. Uh, so I did it. You know, people, oh, man, you're selling yourself out. It's like, I'm selling myself out to feed my kids. Yeah. You know? <laughs> this is, you know, you don't get rich doing paleontology as much as people think they that we do. Well, that's, uh, so yeah, Ned Cook. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, I think he's only mildly interested in dinosaurs <laughs> now. But he was a nice kid, came out to our dig site and things like that as well. That's fun. So there's all different ways you get a dinosaur named after you. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. a, lot, a lot of contributors to museums. Mm -hmm. I mean, Andrew Carnegie. You know, funding all the the work of the early work of the Carnegie Museum. We want some good dinosaurs. You know, Diplodocus Carnegie. Mm -hmm. He was you know, one of the most complete long neck dinosaurs ever found. And he was so enamored with his dinosaur that he actually had him replicated in their cast of Diplod his Diplodocus Carnegie in most of the major museums in the world, particularly that were around in the early part of this last century. Mm -hmm. 
as he examined, you know, Germany, Japan, Mexico City, you know, all over the planet, these, these Diplodocus Carnegie casts. We had a concrete one that actually went to Vernal, Utah. That's, oh. uh, there was just an article published on. Well, that's kind of neat. So who did you name the Diabloceratops after? Oh, Jeff Eaton. Okay. Yeah, Jeff, yeah, Jeff Eaton, you know, who was the groomsman at my wedding. But also, he's, uh, he works on Mesozoic mammals. And he always downplays dinosaurs. So he named a mammal after me. Okay. A uh, little, you know, possum-sized mammal, which is a pretty big mammal for the mid-Cretaceous. Mm. And I named Diablo. But it's also, you know, Jeff earned it because his work at Grand Staircase, the entire paragraph of the presidential proclamation that set aside Grand Staircase, the paleo section, he wrote the whole thing uh, at the time because uh, – he knew the Secretary of Interior, Babbitt, used to be the mayor of Flagstaff, Arizona, mm. and knew Babbitt from those days, or his brother was mayor. But anyway, knew him from Arizona. He was governor of Arizona for a while. You know, he, you know, he earned it. Uh, okay. There's no doubt about it. Uh, published a lot of papers with that guy, and he's named about 30, 40 different Mesozoic mammals in his career. That's cool. Well, I thought it was going to be because he was the devil. But, uh... <laughs> no, no, not the devil, but you, you know, you've seen that animal. There's a bunch of toy ones. In fact, Jurassic Park Yeah, a toy Diablo. It, out. I'm glad they didn't give it butt fuzz because I'm not a big fan of oh, it. I was going to ask you about that. We'll get to there. We'll I, get to there. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, no, it's not real. So the, the, uh, the big fun dinosaur you do is the, the Utah raptor, and its last name, uh, we talked a little about John Ostrom. And uh, Ostrom yeah. mentioned in the in the Jurassic Park novel for being really important in discovering the, the Deinonychus, or you pronounce it Deinonychus, mm-hmm. or and Deinonychus is how I pronounce it. Okay, that's what I like too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he was important in that, and, and then that specimen invigorates this hot blooded debate about a lively animal as opposed to like the the droopy super. Yeah, it was only the third raptor ever found. Yeah, you know, dromaeosaur ever found. And Utah Raptor was the sixth ever found. Now there's like 40, yeah. you know, like five or six families. And now we realize the Utah Raptor and its relatives that we have in these new sites are the oldest skeletal remains of dromaeosaurs in the world. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to turn the, the family tree of those animals and how they relate to birds on its head. Or at least people that I think <laughs> know this stuff better than I looking at the material like we are going to turn it on its head really interesting it's really really exciting because we didn't have ages on this before jack horner used to say utah raptor was just a big adult dinonicus mm-hmm. you know because basically in western north america we had you know this what we call aptian albion the last you know 20 million years of the early cretaceous and that's all we had which is less than the last half of the early cretaceous and below that was a big unconformity down into the Jurassic, you know, from the Morrison, you know, which is, you know, the big classic Jurassic Park dino beds, mm. National Monument, et cetera. And there's a gap everywhere. So this thing was, oh, you know, Jack, everything's a growth series. So, okay, Deinonic, Utah Raptor's just an adult Deinonicus. You know, he's telling Spielberg, no, don't worry about it. You know, you know this stuff will all work. Unfortunately, they decided to use Velociraptor as a name, which was terrible, you know, because from a different continent and like 30 million years later on a different continent, not likely to be the same. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. We worked out. So, uh, yeah, the, we'll just finish up on the, with the Utah Raptors. So it was 
It's Ostromazorum, or is it Ost- yeah. Ostromazi? Which one is it today? Well, it's they're now used. They're back to Mazai. Okay. Okay. So basically, uh, what was it George Olszewski, uh, who was one of these armchair paleontologists from San Diego, pointed out that uh, since I named it after John Ostrom and Chris Mays, Chris Mays was the president of Dynamation mm-hmm. that supported the work I did. It wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Chris Mays. Uh, and at the time, uh, you know, that made some sense, but. Uh, it was going to be Spielberg I originally. I was going to ask about that. Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah. There were actually T-shirts made with that on it. Okay. And, uh, it was in galley proofs, and I got called into the office one day. Says you can't. We're not going to let you name it after Spielberg. Oh. Yeah. Uh huh. What? You know what's what's this all about? And it turns out uh, Universal. You know the uh, uh, people in terms of intellectual properties. We're suing every single museum uh, and venue that was using Jurassic as an adjective to describe their exhibit. And even Yale was using, you know, Jurassic Jungle or something Mm. to advertise, uh, you know, an exhibit, you know, in their dinosaur hall that they were doing. You know, and basically I learned later that if they hadn't just sued everybody up front when someone did, you know, obviously rip them off. They're going to be like in court. Well, so why didn't you sue them? Why didn't mm. you sue them? Yeah. And courts only museums or don't have a lot of money. No. So a lawsuit from Universal Studios is a scary thing. Even a slap suit. Yeah. They they even scan them out. You know, so we have to kind of think of that. So anyway, you know, I ended up having to have a new name. And, uh, you know, John Ostrom uh, had always been good to me on this project. You know, we communicated quite often. And Chris Mays was supporting my work, so I thought, okay, I'll name it for the two of them. Interesting. Well, it's a yeah, good choice. Yeah. Those guys certainly deserve it. Some one of the the I'd heard so, so there's rumors about the Spielberg guy stuff, and it, there yeah. was something I'd heard yeah, about. It was came real close. Yeah, because yeah, I, heard... I think Bacher was telling the Spielberg's group, you know, Stan Winston and gang, uh, you know, that it was a done deal. Mm-hmm. You know, because he su- he suggested it. Uh, I said, yeah, no, that's okay, and you know, I'm not against it. Hopefully, we'll get a little support for the project. Yeah, you know? yeah. And we never got a penny of support. No. Uh, it's uh, you know, a lot of people made money off the Utah Raptor. You know, Universal they had two Utah Raptor toys. They had you know Utah Raptor toy mm-hmm. for the first one with roaring action, you know, and they had one for uh, uh, Lost World. You know, Michael Creighton was you know, so. Look at that that. Uh, that PowerPoint I sent you on yeah. Feather and Utah Raptor. There's pictures of those toys in the slides there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Crichton had this big thing yeah. about how you could use a special uh, C, uh, code in the... There was a gene that you could insert that could make it a biological product patentable. And, and therefore, they could come up with like a new animal and own it. And I wonder if there's just some way you could copyright a discovery. And that way you could get a, get a nickel uh, off like the... Yeah, you know, in intellectual properties, you know, it's like I painted a, an accurate tiger. But it's your name. You picked the name. It, but no one else can paint a picture of a tiger that's accurate. It, you, 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 know, you can't copyright reality. But you could copyright you know, like the that. name, and you could copyright the the your paper that describes it. The entire description. Well, Otherwise, animation copyrighted our nickname for it, Super Slasher. Okay. 
Have you ever heard that name used by anyone, anywhere? That's a good way to stop people from knowing something, is when you protect it. <laughs> is that it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Nobody can uh, use this but me. Like, let's bury it. You know, let's, <laughs> you know I work with uh, Rob Gaston, who makes his living doing beautiful casts uh, and molds of, of dinosaur bones and mount skeletons now. I mean, half of the dinosaurs in the Utah Museum of Natural History are, were put together by Rob Gaston. Uh, I've been to Japan and been in a museum where there are three or four dinosaurs I named on exhibit in Japan, and they're replicas that Rob Gaston produced. You know, so my animals are well known mm -hmm. because they've been replicated and are all over the place. If they were only present in Price, Utah, at the College of Eastern Utah, no one would know much about them, and mm -hmm. it wouldn't be that big a deal. So, you know, I like to share this stuff, but you'll see museums that, oh, we got a new dinosaur, so no one else can... You know, we don't want to replicate it. We don't, you know, want anyone else to see it. And it doesn't get as well publicized. Mm -hmm. And as a scientist, I want my animals to be hallmark dinosaurs that the entire profession looks at. A student studying, you know, ankylosaurs in Japan looks at my Gastonias and looks at, you know, uh, Animantarx and the other animals that we've had replicated over the years. You know, it's like we want to share this stuff. I mean, I love 3D scanning. You know, the democratization of paleontology so anybody can download, you know, three accurate 3D models of things and rapid produce it. There was a guy in Utah that uh, uh, produced the T-Rex skull from the Smithsonian, you know, life size for his son. You know, it took him, you know, a few weeks to print it and put the sections together because it's mm. a pretty big thing. I'll bet. Uh, but it's beautiful. I've seen it. And yeah. it's, you know, it's a lovely accurate skull it's and it's basically the old montana t-rex skull uh, uh and it's a perfect replica in utah that's so it's cool. you know this this new technology i tell you any kid that's coming up in paleontology really needs to learn how to work with 3d data because it's the future i spent hundreds of hours in a dark room i haven't done that in years <laughs> You know, because digital photography, while well, we're moving into this, pretty soon our figures are going to be 3D representations of these animals. So I describe it, 3D, you can, you know, download it, and then, oh, I want to print it out, and I want to do a study of the, the uh, biomechanics of the forelimb. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the elements, and you can actually modify them in your computer if they've been distorted by pressure and time, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's, it's, it's the way we need to go. So any of you young guys, you know, young women, you know, listen to this, learn how to deal with CT data, laser scan data, photogrammetry. This is the future. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand that there is a lot of kind of like fun coincidences between Jurassic Park being written, published and uh, converted into a movie and debuting in 93 and being published in 1990 uh, with the discovery and the announcements and the and the publishing on Utah Raptor. And I remember back then too, I remember I can remember this, that they're like, Velociraptor wasn't this animal that's depicted on the screen, but there is a new discovery very similar to Velociraptor, which fits the description. So it's not, it's not pure fantasy, that there's science that says that a raptor could do this, even if it weren't called Velociraptor. And this was all part of what you were doing then uh, with the Utah Raptor. Um, what are some of the, I guess, fun coincidences that go along with Jurassic Park? Well, your... The amazing thing is yeah. Brighton published Jurassic Park the year where we first ID'd this giant dromaeosaur, you know, in the Gaston Quarry. 
you know, that was the same season. You know, we're probably within a few months of the publication. So, uh, and he was basing on Dionychus in the mm. book. It wasn't blown up as big as Utah Raptor. No. It was very much like Dionychus, a wolf size. And at the time, the biggest one in the world, uh, Dromiosaur known. Uh, but when, when that book was published within, you know, months of it, we found this giant raptor. And I was pretty excited about it because John had shared with me literature from rocks of this age. So I had his book out there with me on the cloverleaf fauna. Okay. And he had a picture of the first sickle claw of Dinonychus. And I said, this thing is twice the size of Dinonychus. And the people I was with said, oh, he probably has the scale wrong in the picture. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's just a Dinonychus. I mean, this thing's poo-pooed for years. You know, we're getting ready to do a press release that are finally I got acceptable dates mm-hmm. using multiple lines of evidence that these rocks are like 136 million years old, you know, 20 million years older than Dinonychus. Uh, but up until that point, no one believed us. I mean, in the profession, it was it used to drive me nuts. It's like, there's no way this stuff's the same age as the Cloverly. That's cool. Uh, but we got this new resolution in time. So now we're, we're getting the pages of the story in order. It's always helpful. You know, mm-hmm. Jurassic Park is a random uh, set of pages. It'd be a lot harder to, to understand. It would take a little more effort. <laughs> it must be. It must be fascinating to discover something that's unbelievable, and people like. But then frustrating that nobody believes you. But <laughs> that, that, it's so fantastic that uh, people are like, nah, that's not true. You got it wrong. And then uh, that that must be just oh, yeah. thrilling. Oh yeah, I, I, I mean, as a scientist, I mean, that's what it's all about. You know, falsifying. A theory, you know, a proposal is how you test science. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have a thick skin, you know, and you're not prepared that, yeah, the next le- layer of scientists working on that topic, one of their goals is can they falsify, you know, show you were wrong. Mm-hmm. That's how we test science. It's not falsifiable. It's not science. You know, you have a hypothesis out there, you know, needs to be test- about, testable. And if you've proposed a solution to that hypothesis, it needs to be something that can be shown to be wrong. And they keep trying to make it wrong, and you keep, you know, it keeps failing. You know, mm-hmm. not, not being, we're not proving it wrong, we're not proving it wrong. And eventually, you know, enough effort in that line, uh, direction that goes nowhere, people start saying, well, that probably is true or closer to truth than we had thought. Uh, but we're always looking at an approximation. We're getting, <laughs> we're getting there. You know, as I tell kids, you know, I've discovered 23 dinosaurs, and hopefully we'll have 26 named before I'm done. Um, you know, there's a lot more out there. We probably have 30 unnamed dinosaurs being worked on labs in Utah and in neighboring areas from Utah mm-hmm. uh, at this very minute. I mean, there's lots. You know, we've discovered over 100 dinosaurs in Utah in the last 30 years. Uh, gone from 22 to 130 plus, wow. you know, in, in like 30 years. So it's it's been pretty, uh, pretty fun. Yeah, uh, I love being part of this wave, and it's it's not just my early Cretaceous grand staircase and the money that was thrown toward those projects mm-hmm. resulted in a lot of discoveries as well. Really cool stuff. So uh, I have to ask a question on behalf of my wife. She wants to know if it brings you any joy that the Utah Raptor represents the letter U in the Dinosaur Train's Dinosaurs A to Z song. <laughs> it's it's nice. I always like Zuni Ceratops. One reason I named it Zuni Ceratops, you know, with my buddy Doug Wolf, who uh, 
uh, you know, it was, it was the last animal in the dinosaur dictionary for a long time. Mm -hmm. Figure if you can't be first, be gloriously last. Yeah. You want to be at the inside cover. That's where you want to be. Yeah. <laughs> That's the popular spot everybody looks to. Um, the showmanship is part of this. Yes. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, government money, university money directed toward these re this research. Mm -hmm. The reason most of us, you know, we're looking at the history of the planet. I mean, I've learned stuff about the history of Utah's you know, Mesozoic mountain ranges and the burial of organics and how they would turn to oil. Those are all collateral collateral science mm. that's come out of these this work. But in terms of dinosaurs, the public's interest, you know, that's where the money, most of the Utah Raptor project has been funded in the past, so far by donations. And, and you know, we, we need to let the public in on what we're doing and why we're excited. Mm -hmm. You know, without doing that, you're, you know, you're one of my mouthpieces out there. <laughs> we need you guys, you know, because without it, you know, no one's going to care. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're making Utah sound like the most crazy place in the world, uh, but 110 million years ago. <laughs> now it's tamer. Oh, well, right. You know, we, right now, we're, I think we're up to 31 or 32 uh, sequential, non-overlapping dinosaur faunas that we have in Utah. Okay. When I was, like, looking at the Time Life books when they were coming through the mailbox, you know, time, you know, Life magazine when they were doing that series in the late 50s, I would, you know, it was amazing to me, you know, seeing these things come through. But you come away, it's like, there's a Triassic with a few dinosaurs. You have this yep. Jurassic with a few dinosaurs. And you have the Cretaceous with T-Rex and a few dinosaurs. And that was it, three faunas. Mm -hmm. That's what most of the people my age grew up with. And as I'm saying, we got over 30 in Utah alone. And that's not just dinosaurs. That's new lizards, new mammals, new birds, new snails, new clams, new plants. Mm -hmm. These are faunas. This is like discovering Australia. Each time you find a new 30 fauna. Australias. Oh, yeah. Here's Australia. Oh, look at New Zealand. They're real different, aren't they? Uh, and we're, so cool. we're seeing this and putting together this robust story of the history of dinosaurs in Utah that's you know unmatched anywhere in the world. I mean, China's got some extraordinary snapshots with the various lake beds preserving feathered dinosaurs. They have several levels like that. But we have this continuous, well-dated history of dinosaurs that, you know, we're just realizing we have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wish I'd live another hundred years to see what we'll know then. <laughs> That's not in the yeah. works, but I'm kind of happy that I'm the one that helped light the fuse. That's so cool. Could I, uh, so we're running out of time. There's so many more things I wanted to get to. Maybe we'll get jump out of Utah for a second. And uh, you had a little Twitter post that you made. It was just like this little video of a boar escaping some wild dogs and it runs into a burrow and then its tusks are facing up out of the ground. And your comment was, this is almost certainly what Protoceratops was doing. And so we go into Mongolia, we find these terrific, uh, people have found uh, these terrific specimens of Protoceratops and Velociraptor kind of quarreling with one another. Lots of Cetacosaurus and Protoceratops coming out of that area in in articulation they're really well preserved and the explanation was always that it was, you know a dune collapsed on them and i was like i can't picture that I'm, maybe i'm just limited in my perspective but well the fighting dinosaurs yeah. is probably a dune collapse some okay. of those the the family groups of uh, uh panacosaurus and ankylosaur those are probably dune collapses mm -hmm. and i think the adult was able to dig its way out but the little animals weren't but uh, we have all these what we call t tail standing protoceratops 
And the Canadians, you know, Phil Curry's team, when they were working over there in the 80s <coughs> and, and early 90s, they found in, in one area in northern China, where there's just a whole row of these animals, you know, pointed the same way on their tail. Mm. And the one trip I made to Mongolia, uh, I had the good fortune of, you know, getting alerted by you know, some of our people that were with me that we found what looks like a proto in a tube. And the sand dunes, you know, the Flaming Cliffs area, you know, look pretty amorphous. Sometimes you'll see good cross beds, but a lot of it's somewhat amorphous. Uh, but then there are places where you see these ironstone cemented burrows and root traces, and they weather out like little fairy villages, you know, real nicely. And here was a proto-skeleton in a big tube of this ironstone. Okay. The only way we see these burrows is when they're enhanced by this iron cementation, which doesn't always happen. So, you know, here we had this proto in a tube, and I'm like, you know, that that's our evidence. These things, you know, rolled out of the hill, rolled out of the hill. Mm -hmm. So I came across it much later uh, than I would have liked. But in my mind, it was very good evidence mm -hmm. that the tail standers, and when you look at these skeletons in general, a lot of protos are, like, tilted back with their heads up above yeah. the breast body. And, you know, and the tails are vertical. So they're in burrows, and, you know, an event happens, and the dune comes over and buries their burrow. Mm -hmm. the, the nesting dinosaurs, you know, there's a big sandstorm. And I've been in the Gobi with a big sandstorm, and they're <laughs> pretty nasty. You know, and the overraptor, you know, is trying to protect their nests. Mm -hmm. So they're on top of it, hunkering down, and the dune collapses and buries them on their nests. There's like five of them now. now. <laughs> uh, you know, you see this taphonomic fingerprint of different animals, the big stuff more rare because it tends to lay out on the surface longer and rots you know and, and mm. is, is chewed up my protos often they're very juicy so you see uh, borings in them from some kind of uh, carnivorous scavenger beetles and pupae associated with those skeletons all the velociraptors tend to have been buried juicy which means they're buried you know live mm. and the animals scavenging them you know, there's only one or two Velociraptor skulls of all the ones found mm -hmm. that are not just full of holes from beetles. Because uh, generally, you know, these beetles would fly over the dune field, sniffing out, oh, there's something sure. there, dig their way down and lay their eggs in the carcass. But this stuff tells us how these animals are living. Yeah. The researchers that have been in charge of those digs in the last couple of decades, the American Museum, they basically are looking at the phylogeny. They're looking at what are these animals? And they basically aren't big fans of doing anything significant with paleoecology in studies like that, even though clearly the Gobi shows a really good fingerprint of what's going on. It's very different. It's a desert environment. Mm -hmm. It's not a big marsh, swamp, pond, or you know, margin of the ocean. Right. So uh, when you so what happens then? How do we bury these animals? You can go underground without getting wet, yeah. Smaller animals. You know, they're in the burrows and things. And, you know, you go to Utah, look at our dune fields out by Goblin Valley. You know, you see burrows under where there's been vegetation, stabilized dune. Burrows of coyotes and things in it. Or the skeletons you find out there, things, you know, pronghorn antelope, uh, you know, coyotes, you know, rabbits, lizards. You see the smaller animals. The gobies full of lizard skulls and things all over the place. Mm -hmm. They have the greater chance of being buried. You don't see big you know, deer skeletons often because, you know, they're bigger animals and aren't as likely to get buried by those dunes. 
so these are all lines of evidence and I keep telling people, you know, one of my soapboxes is you guys have to bring a good ethnologist to the Gobi. Mm. It's someone that really works on burrows because that story is a really important part of the story. Mm -hmm. What I like about that interpretation as well, like so in the in the video you shared, the warthog's tusks um, are the only thing that's on the surface. And so the dogs are unlikely to get past like the oh, most yeah. fortified part of this of this hog, especially it's got a strong neck and it's gonna it's gonna poke you pretty good. Uh, and when we think of the protoceratops head, it's almost like a manhole cover when it gets its head. Oh yeah, down there. And, like, and then not, they got that sharp beak. Yeah, you cannot uh, get to the good part <laughs> unless you're, I guess, a, a beetle. If the young are down in the in the burrow, yeah, you're if not you getting in. dinosaurs in North America. You know, Rectodromius is you know from Idaho and Montana and probably Utah as well. In the mid Cretaceous, we got them in burrows when they're mm -hmm. young. You know, we know they're burrowing. Uh, in protos, look at the way their feet are set up with those claws. You know, digging into you know stabilized dunes. You know, they're not active dunes because it's just going to collapse yeah, on yeah. you. But if you got plant growth over the top of the dune, yeah, you, know, you go under it. Mm -hmm. You know, and you can make a pretty large cavity under there, and that's what coyotes do. You know, coyotes are not built as well for digging as a proto is. But they still dig burrows that are big enough for them to go in, as do the badgers and other animals. Now, it's uh, behavior on these animals. There's a lot more going on than, than we, we, we think, you know, I think without a question. Um, you know, these are dynamic living animals. I love that warthog doing that turn on the fly. Yeah. <laughs> it goes into the burrow butt first. Really agile, yeah. Feet, back into, you know, that's a behavior. It's practice. Right. <laughs> But uh, yeah, and I I've had a good chance to study the fighting dinosaur up close and personal, both in Mongolia and in Japan. Uh, so I've been with it a, a few times, and you know, definitely had my nose right up to things. And you know, it's an incredible fossil. You know, it really is, and the fact that they uh, prepped it so you could see the the relationship of those skeleton skeletons mm -hmm. with each other. There's another fighting dinosaur pair. And sadly, you know, it was in private hands. They took it apart, you know. So there are a few pictures, I guess, of them together. You know, they're associated. Uh, but they took the thing apart, you know. Right now, North Carolina Museum of Natural History has the big fighting dinosaurs, that small tyrannosaur ceratopsian pair from, um, I think, from Montana, maybe, maybe South Dakota. It's the Hell Creek Montana. Formation. They told me the Hell Creek yeah, Formation. But that covers, you know. It could be anything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where the site is. But they built a whole lab for this thing. And I know one of the students is mm -hmm. working on it. We're putting him in charge of describing the Utah Raptors and the Utah Raptor block. You know, that that's an amazing specimen. But the context mm -hmm. you know, is preserved. You know, this thing's as professional we might not have done. But it's like, don't touch those jackets. Let scientists yeah. extract the rock from them. Let scientists go out there. They videotape so much of this. There's good documentation. Those are associated animals. And, you know, this is a big pair of fighting animals <laughs> that died on the edge of a river system. You know, looks like the Tyrannosaur had its head stoved in yeah. by the Triceratops. Because, you know, it's a perfect skeleton. Everything's there. The whole side of the head is just mashed in. It's like, mm. oh, I wonder if that killed it. 
<laughs> Didn't last long after that. Well, we're almost out of time. I wanted to ask you more about this uh, terrific uh, ex- major extinction event that you found in the uh, in the sediments in in, in Utah. I want to ask you more about velociraptors and dromaeosaurs and all of the, that history you had there. Um, but because we're just straight out of time, maybe you could tell uh, us. We were talking about the fighting dinosaurs and the and the dueling dinosaurs. What is expected to be uncovered in 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 the future as this? Utah Raptor Mega Block be- opens up. <laughs> what, what are we going to find inside of this right. Rosetta Stone of, of dinosaurs? Well, you know, we have evidence of like sheaths on the claws. You know, they're faint, but they're there. We've gotten a piece of skin out of there that's scale covered. Okay. It could be from meat or, you know, some other part of the animal. Uh, it could be from a different animal. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be really shocked if we found a bird in there. But uh, we're going to get a lot of new, beautiful data. You know, we got a new raptor in there, new dromaeosaur, about as big as a velociraptor, where we have at least two complete disarticulated skulls. Not one skull, two, you know, as well as their skull skeletons. We have a gross series of the Utah raptor in there. Uh, so we're going to really get to know it up to an adult, down to small animals. You know, it's going to take a long time to extract all this, and micro CT scanning is going to make it happen faster mm-hmm. without any question. But we're going to learn more about these animals. It's going to be a hallmark. It'll be like Velociraptor, which is known from lots of specimens. We are going to know an incredible amount about these animals that were living, you know, at the very base of the Cretaceous here in Utah. And some of the animals that lived with them, you know, might be the origins of animals that actually go to Asia or go to Europe later. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, we're... In terms of paleogeography, you know, we're dating the opening of the Atlantic, the origins of Alaska, you know, these migration corridors, because we have this record in North America that we can link it to these places with related animals. There's lots of really good research that, you know, we now know we can do. It still needs to be done. (laughs) But before, people say, well, there isn't the data to do this kind of study. The data is there. And, you know, it's just, you know, I wish we'd support more students. We need more museums. We need more people paying to go to museums so they can function. Uh, But there is so much to learn. This next generation, you know, it's limitless. And that's exciting. You know, when I was a kid, oh, I wish I was back 100 years ago to discover a Stegosaurus. You know, way better now. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) way better. Well, before we go, did you want to mention the the big conference that's coming up in June? Yeah, we're hosting uh, this spring, and you know it's an international and it's serious science. But uh, the first time the uh, Mesozoic Terrestrial Ecosystems conferences has ever been in the United States. Uh, this is the the fourteenth one, and they have them every four years. COVID now, we, this is six years because of COVID. But uh, it's the first time in the United States, and I'm real thrilled they realize, you know, globally how important Utah is uh, in the scheme of things. Uh, so we're real excited about it. And we got a great lineup of talks. I'm, I'm real excited. My biggest fear is we're going to get more people signing up than the venue can legally hold. Okay. That's, you know, that could be bad. You know, we're going to have to probably have to cut off on the people. We got to make sure we don't cut off the scientists that are speaking. Maybe, maybe find yourself an amphitheater and just really open it up. Yeah, well, that costs money. We, you know, we're keeping the meeting. <laughs> Fair enough. Reasonable. You know, scientists don't have money. What is the the date of the conference in June? 
Uh, it's June, well, field trips before and after, but June 8th through 10th. Okay, because June 11th is the anniversary of Jurassic Park. Oh, well. <laughs> so right in that wheelhouse. It's a good time. For we're gonna, that's when we're going to get, and one of our trips is going to arrive at Dinosaur National Monument. That <laughs> I'm a co leader on uh, our post meeting trip. I think it's the 30th anniversary, actually, will be on the 11th. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually got to see Jurassic Park with an Associated Press reporter sitting right next to me. Oh, yeah? Not the best way to see it. No. And this guy's reporting, hey, he was squirming through the whole movie. Like, well, Spielberg said he wouldn't let his kids see it. <laughs> so I was expecting to see these these dromaeosaurs, these raptors, ripping people apart. You know, because the the ability these animals have to take something out, or you know, the same as a lion. It's mm-hmm. you know, it's not pretty. You know, red in tooth and claw. You know, <laughs> but of course, it's pretty tame, pretty PG. You know, but I kept squirming because I know what these animals were capable of. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Well, awesome. Well, good memories there, too. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you had a good time. There's so much more oh, I wanted to get great. into. Would you ever want to come back and talk about Dromisaur some more? Oh, sure. Yeah, right. I'm easy. I mean, this doesn't take much out of my day. All right. Well, you're on the list because I'd love to have you back. I want to know. I want to talk about Dromisaur. You'll find most of our profession is pretty easygoing. I mean, really, yeah, you know, we're doing what we want to do as kids for the majority of us. Right on. Well, that's good. Uh, well, <laughs> well, thank you once again. I really appreciate it. Hey, take care. All right, a great big thank you to Jim Kirkland. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Learned a lot, and I had a great time prepping for this interview. He sent me some terrific uh, YouTube videos of of some lectures he did during the pandemic and everything you wanted to know about the history of uh, dromaeosaurs. It's such a fascinating stuff. I'll put links in the show notes. Uh, This week's text is Tyrannosaurus, spanning from pages 288 to 298. In a synopsis, Muldoon and Gennaro locate the Big Rex and head out to tranquilize her. Meanwhile, Lex, Tim, and Grant plummet over the waterfall where the Big Rex has been waiting to eat them. The Tyrannosaur loses them in the water but finds the life vest. Meanwhile, Grant snags the kids, resuscitates Lex from drowning, and leads them up a path behind the waterfalls to hide from the Tyrannosaur. But behind the falls, Grant finds a secured maintenance facility. A golf cart, a juvenile velociraptor, but unfortunately, he gets separated from the kids by a locked door. He tranquilizes the raptor, discovering that it's a male that was bred in the wild. And the kids, on the other hand, are locked out, and the tyrannosaur bursts through the waterfalls, uses its tongue like an elephant trunk to catch Tim, and is about to eat him when it falls asleep. Characters, we have Robert Muldoon. Muldoon drives the jeep with Gennaro at his side on 288. He stops the car on a high rise. He drinks from a bottle of whiskey between his knees. And on his dashboard monitor, Grant and the kids as well as the Tyrannosaur, are still not showing up with the motion sensors. Muldoon has to turn the radio off when Arnold starts cautioning him about preserving the big wrecks because she's the park's most important tourist attraction. Bloody fool, says Muldoon. They're still talking about tourists. Muldoon admits he's been wanting to put a needle in the big wrecks, quote, for a while on 289. So here we see Muldoon's. He's pretty realistic. Yeah, this, this park's probably closing now. Muldoon drains back the rest of the whiskey and grabs the weaponry. He instructs Gennaro on how to load the air rifle and explains how temperament and size both contribute to how much an animal should be dosed. In Muldoon's conversation with Gennaro about the dinosaurs in the park, he mentions how strange the animals are and that they seem to come in many types. Tame, cute, mean, nasty, visually capable, dim-sighted, stupid, very, very intelligent. Muldoon stops the car about 50 yards from the Tyrannosaur, which, if you recall, it steps seven yards while it's running, so they've parked seven strides away from the Tyrannosaur. And the T-Rex is more than 13 yards in length, so they're only three body lengths away from the big Rex. These are the dimensions at which they are parked. 
to put things in perspective. They're three body lengths away from this thing. Muldoon admits he's never tried this with their ex before. He'll aim behind the auditory meatus, and he sets up his shot ten yards behind the jeep, crouching in the grass on one knee. The big gun has a telescopic sight. He fires and begins to reload at the tyrannos- as the Tyrannosaur feels the prick. The lack of a significant reaction for the Tyrannosaur leads Muldoon to believe he missed his shot. But... He's three body lengths away from the animal bigger than a barn. Maybe he didn't directly hit the auditorium meatus, but he had to hit some part of the damn thing. His telescopic sight wasn't good enough. He needs the battery for the laser sights to aid him for his next shot. Despite the Tyrannosaurus' roar and Arnold's pleading over the radio, Muldoon insists on taking another shot before they try and escape on 291. He stares down the Tyrannosaur and plunks a second dart into it to no effect. He sprints back to the Jeep, drives through the door, and orders Gennaro to, quote, step on it. As they escaped, Muldoon could swear he hit the Big Rex with the second shot, but concedes he must have missed on 292. Muldoon blames himself for not checking that the battery in the laser sight was charged. They report back in to Arnold that they're returning to, quote, base. Donald Gennaro. Gennaro rides with Muldoon into the park on 288. Gennaro declines partaking in the whiskey while they're out in the park. Gennaro consents that Muldoon is eager to take on the Big Rex on 289. They locate the Tyrannosaur, and Gennaro can see the Jeep and the dinosaur together on the monitor in the jeep. He imagines there must be a monitor around that can spot them both. Muldoon recruits Gennaro to open up the Halliburton case and help him snap the tip off and screw on a needle. Gennaro asks more expository questions like, why? Why does the temperament matter to dosage? And then most of his dialogue is just questions prompting Muldoon to be interesting. And here's Gennaro's di- dialogue. You consider them reptiles? Like the velociraptors? Wonder what he sees in there. You done this very often before? You hit him? A what? All questions. Crichton's application of Gennaro is fairly one-dimensional. Gennaro takes the wheel while Muldoon fires at the Tyrannosaur on 290. After Muldoon's first shot, he asks Gennaro to find the battery for his laser sight on 291. When the Tyrannosaur roars at them, Gennaro stops looking for the battery and gets ready to drive. Gennaro figures that Muldoon must have missed his shot at the Rex for it to show absolutely no effect of being tranquilized on 292. John Arnold. Arnold radios the jeep when the Big Rex finally appears, notifying Muldoon that she's been found heading from grid 442 to 443. Arnold cautions Muldoon to only immobilize the Rex. She has to be protected. She's the park's most important tourist attraction. After they shoot the Tyrannosaur, Arnold gets back on the radio and insists that they get out of there on 291. Lex Murphy. Lex finds the rushing river fun and yells, Wee! Faster! Faster! on 292. At this point, we find that Lex is apparently absolutely tone-deaf or something like that. Like, is she just a wound-up irrational little kid or is she bipolar, perhaps? She's having a fantastic mood swing. Like, Hammond is said to be prone to mood swings, and but he's got nothing on Lex. She hasn't buckled her life jacket up and then admits she can't swim. Next, we see the life vest. It's at the bottom of the falls. After the Tyrannosaur plunges its head into the water and raising it with the life vest caught in its teeth, the presumption is that Lex has been eaten on 293, but she's slipped out of that unbuckled life vest, bobbing to the surface by the Tyrannosaur's tail. But she's face down in the water, being swept away by the current. Grant snags her and drags her to the rocky shore. Her face is gray. Water pours from her mouth. But she's resuscitated and immediately starts being obnoxious, demanding explanations on where they're going and why. She's concerned that they're backtracking toward the waterfall instead of continuing north to the hotel on 294. She gets very scared that perhaps a Tyrannosaur spotted them before they made it behind the waterfall, and then starts shouting about where they are and what this place they're at is. And when Grant leaves to enter the dark closet, Lex refuses to enter, and then is terrified that he's leaving them behind on 295. She stops and demands 
The Grant return until the Tyrannosaurus head bursts through the waterfall to snatch them on 296. And as the Rex pulls Tim back into its jaws, Lex tugs on Tim's hand, trying to keep him from being eaten on 297. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant squints and recall his vision isn't as great as the kids's and could see the trees ending, a distant roaring sound, the river appearing to end abruptly in a peculiar flat line, the raft going faster, rushing forward. He's figured it out. They're headed straight for a waterfall on 292. Grant isn't strong enough to paddle the boat out of the torrential waterfall as they encroach towards the lip of the falls. He jams his paddle into the riverbed bottom, halting their progress, and they stop just on the edge, peering 50 feet down where the Tyrannosaur is at the bottom, waiting for them. Grant's descent of of the waterfall is captured in life-flashing-before-your-eyes styled slow motion on 293, and he slaps into the water, snags Tim in the current, and makes his way to the shore. They witness the Tyrannosaur with Lex's life jacket in its jaws, but she's not in the life vest, and Grant snags her gray, water-filled body from the current. He gives her mouth-to-mouth and resuscitates her. She'll be fine. They're not clear from the Tyrannosaur, though. Grant has to find a hiding place in 294. They sneak behind the waterfall and find some park machinery. Grant hopes that this indicates that there's a telephone nearby that they can use. He solves a password code for the door and discovers there may be a vehicle they can use to make it back to the hotel. But Lex won't come into the dark closet. But he hasn't time to argue with her, so he leaves the kids and explores the darkness on 295. As soon as he enters the doorway through some contrivance of plot, the door snaps shut behind him, separating him from the kids by a locked door. He stumbles around finding a flashlight, then a golf cart, and then an infant velociraptor, which lunges at him, so he shoots it with the dark gun on 296. And he quickly deduces it's a young male animal that that was bred in the wild. He's excited about this. He returns to the door and finds that it's entirely locked and could only be opened from the outside. Tim Murphy. After landing at the bottom of the waterfall, Grant snatches Tim up, takes him into the shore on 293. And seeing his sister almost drown really worries Tim, and he starts to cry. Then he sneaks behind the waterfall with his sister and gets trapped behind the locked door when the Tyrannosaur attacks again. And he wants to go through the door with Grant, but Lex is too scared on 295. And Tim tries to calm Lex down after Grant is snapped up inside the maintenance closet behind the waterfalls when the Rex's head bursts through and snatches them on 296. It snatches Tim by his head with its freaking tongue and slowly, dramatically draws him back into its jaws on 297. But it stops. And Tim lives. And note, it's not mentioned because it is never mentioned, but after being plunged into the water and climbing out and going behind the waterfall and being wrapped up by the Tyrannosaur tongue, picture that Tim is still carrying those night vision goggles. He's going to be using them later, and he keeps them this whole time. Tyrannosaurus, she's called Rexy a bit in this chapter on page 290, and they find her, quote, poking its head through the branches, peering toward the river. We know that she's poking her head at Grant and the kids, another near miss from park management, to find these missing guests. After being struck by the dart, the Tyrannosaur appears curious. It looks at the jeep first with one eye and then with the other, moving its head from side to side, described on 291. As we discussed earlier, this is bird-like behavior that Crichton employs, but a Tyrannosaur has binocular vision. It saw by looking straight forward, and so it would not turn its head from side to side to look at you with one eye and then the other, any more than you or I would do that. And of course, we don't, because we look straight ahead, just like a Tyrannosaur does, too. The Tyrannosaur roars and then charges the Jeep. How many steps does one take before they've considered to be charging? Because, as we've calculated, it runs at 7 yards per step, and it's only 50 yards away. That's 7 steps from the Jeep. What would that take a big thing, like 7 seconds? 14 seconds? 
20 seconds? Muldoon has time to fire a second shot, notice that nothing happened, be aware that the Tyrannosaur is continuing to charge, then run the 10 yards of his own back to the jeep, before Gennaro can, quote, floor it, and they make their escape. After chasing off the jeep, the Tyrannosaur apparently went up the river, which ironically is downhill, moving to the bottom of the waterfalls on 292. It tries to catch the tourists in the waterfall, but winds up just with Lex's life vest caught between its teeth on 294, and then it can't find out where they went. Without being able to see through the waterfall, the Tyrannosaur instead rests its jaws on the ground and sniffs and searches the area with its tongue on 297. Its tongue snakes around its thick blue and black with its little forked indentation at the tip, and the tongue is four feet long with muscular movements like an elephant's trunk, and it rises like a snake. Apparently, the tongue smells like urine, we're told. Uh, we have Velociraptors in this chapter. Muldoon warns that the Velociraptors are very, very intelligent. Quote, believe me, all the problems we've had so far are nothing compared to the problems we'd have if the raptors ever got out of containment, he says on 290. Then a juvenile raptor lunges at Grant in the main 04 space on page 296. It was less than a year old, about two feet tall, the size of a medium dog, and has been tranquilized. To Grant, he feels a sense of intelligence from it, a softness contrasted from the strange menace given off by the adults in the holding pen earlier. And Grant can see that this is a male raptor. Its sexual organs are visibly distinguishable as masculine. And this critter, he deduces, must be therefore bred in the wild. We have Microceratops, or Microceratus, as we, as we understand. They dart around into the branches and can give Rex a, quote, merry chase, according to Muldoon on page 290. Localities. Beyond the aviary, along the Jungle River, about a mile from the hotel, is a locality. Muldoon and Gennaro drive the jeep through the, an open field, away from the dense line of foliage and palm trees that marked the course of the river on 288. This is in continuity with what we've experienced so far, that the river is in a dense foliage that creates what appears to be a dark tunnel. It's very hot, and the landscape shimmers in that way when heat rises off of the ground. Arnold radios the jeep when the Big Rex finally appears on the monitors, notifying Muldoon that she's been found, heading from grid 442 to 443. The Jungle River. Now the narrow river is flowing swiftly, like an amusement park ride on 292. The waterfall. At the bottom of the falls, there is a strong current and the stream moves on. It's about 50 feet tall, and there are rocks at the bottom, leading to slippery, rocky shores on 293, we're told. Downstream, there is an open, grassy plain, but a dirt path by the river seems to lead behind the waterfall, we're told, on 294. And a man's shoe print is clearly there in the dirt, indicating people walk on this path. It leads somewhere. There are big ferns that line the riverbank on 294. And behind the waterfall, there's a constant hanging mist. The rocks are more slippery, and there's a loud roar of the falling water. The path goes behind the waterfall. The wall of water is an opaque silver sheet of falling water, and there's a little recess back there, like a closet, filled with machinery, pumps, filters, and pipes. Maint 04. Grant finds a locked metal door marked Maint 04 on 295, which is operated by a security card. There are metal boxes on the wall filled with switches and timers. To the left of the door, there is a nine-button keypad covered in green mold. The door has the password scratched into it, 1023. This door is electronic and is on a spring, snapping shut after it's been opened. Now, wait a minute. Let's think about a nine-button password, you would have the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. That's nine buttons. But the password code is 1023. Zero is not among those nine buttons. So interesting. <laughs> well, that's neither here nor there, I guess. This door is electronic, not as on a spring, snapping shut after it's been opened. 
Beyond the door, there are no lights, but there is a flashlight. With it, Grant finds no light switch, but does find an electric car, like a golf cart, on 296. The door is locked and can only be opened from the other side. Oh, and let's take one last moment here. So this is maintenance building, or maintenance room, maintenance section. This is some sort of maintenance facility, and it's labeled number four. Recall we were in sauropod maintenance building number four earlier. So this is maybe four designates which type of compound that they're in. Maybe the sauropod uh, pen or section is in the 400 series of... of um, of the grid of the map. Recall that the Tyrannosaur is in the sauropod paddock and is moving from 442 to 443. So there's sauropod maintenance building number four, maintenance room number four, and they're moving from grid 442 to 443. So perhaps this whole maintenance area with sauropods and things like that is uh, part four of the grid. I don't know. So allusions and references. We have the Halliburton case. For some reason, the Halliburton case is a cultural phenomenon of briefcases. They appear in TV and movies all the time, generally representing especially secure cases that keep their contents, which are usually very special, especially safe. James Bond, The Men in Black, Charlie's Angels, The Usual Suspects, The Professional are all examples of big, high-profile films that rely on the image of a Halliburton case to signify very serious contents being transported very seriously. And in Jurassic Park, Crichton has a stainless steel Halliburton containing four cylinders with a tranquilizer to take down the big Rex on 289. If you were a big fan of Lost, which I was, the Halliburton case, which Kate has her secrets, or I guess the air marshal had Kate's secrets in, locked inside, was also a plot point for season one of that show. Oh, Lost. In another world, in another lifetime, maybe I did a Lost podcast. <laughs> that wasn't 30 years after it was published. Uh, stylistic techniques. Italics. Come on emphasizes Grant with a little extra oomph. Lexa said that she's going to start listening to him, but he's demanding they get going, and she stopped to ask, where are we going on 294? Holy cow, Lex. She needs an explanation for everything. Every We're going back, whines Lex, indicating that they're backtracking back towards the waterfall when they were previously trying to go north, back to the hotel. So this back emphasis explains her confusion a little bit, but again, since when did anybody have to explain all of their plans to her? He should come back now, 296, insists Lex, terrified of being alone in the park behind the waterfall without an adult. I hate him, on 297, says Lex, as the Rex head pursues them behind the waterfall. Don't move, Tim whispered on 297, which is italicized. In this case, the italics indicate that Tim is whispering. Ultimately, italics indicate a change from regular diction, and you'll require the context to know if that's suggesting sarcasm, a joke, yelling, innuendo, or whispering. And note, whoever came up with innuendo as a word that suggests something a little saucy is being said beyond what's actually being said must have had a sense of humor. Where are you going to put that? Innuendo. Uh, colon. There was a little recess here, hardly larger than a closet, and filled with machinery. Colon. Humming pumps and big filters and pipes on 294. And here the colon presents a list of items, in this case, the types of machinery that Grant can see. Tim thought, colon, he can't see us on 297, where the colon presents a discovery. In this case, it's Tim understanding that the Tyrannosaurus' eyes are obstructed from seeing them via the waterfall. Semicolons. Quote, Grant saw that she did not have her life vest clasped. Clasped. I hate that word. But there was nothing he could do about it. Semicolon. With frightening speed, they came to the edge, and the roar of the waterfall seemed to fill the world, on page 292. Two fairly long sentences to be conjoined with a semicolon, but, but it keeps the pace moving quickly, without starting and stopping sentences. Grant jammed his oar deep into the water, felt it catch and hold, right at the lip, 
semicolon. The rubber raft shuddered in the current, but they did not go over on page 292. Here we get more cause and effect action, the semicolon keeping that rate going fast, so it's another good application of the semicolon. Quote, it seemed to him he fell for long minutes, semicolon. He had time to observe Lex, clutching her orange jacket, falling alongside him, semicolon. He had time to observe Tim, looking down at the bottom, semicolon. He had time to observe the frozen white sheet of waterfall, semicolon. He had time to observe the bubbling pool beneath him as they fell slowly, silently toward it, on 293. One thing a semicolon is terrific at is listing items, especially when those items are complete sentences. In this case, the list of things that Grant sees while he's falling down the waterfall. It's a textbook use of a semicolon. We can't have any issues with that. Quote, Tim couldn't answer. Semicolon. His mouth was covered by the flat black tongue on 298. Here, the semicolon separates two separate clauses that are closely related enough that it's not worth making two sentences out of it. So in this case, uh, that Tim can't answer is connected to why he cannot answer. There's a Tyrannosaurus tongue wrapped over his mouth. Ellipses. Damn laser sights. Ellipsis. See if there's a battery in the case on 291, which is Muldoon taking a break to think of where to look for the battery. It's not a great piece of dialogue, nor especially useful application of an ellipsis, and I'm not sure why Muldoon is taking a pause here, but maybe it's just for him to think. Uh, quote, the river seemed to end abruptly in a particular flat line ellipsis on 292, where the ellipsis appears to leave an ominous thing left unsaid, uh, that they're approaching a waterfall. So that's a pretty good ellipsis. Quote, but at any minute the animal might turn and see them. Ellipsis. On 294, and here the ellipsis leaves the concerning damning consequences of the Tyrannosaurus spotting them unsaid, allowing us to fill in the blanks. Quote, there was no knob, no latch. He turned to the walls on either side of the door, feeling for a switch, a control box, anything at all. Ellipsis. On 295, and the ellipsis is the emptiness that his fingers are finding. There's nothing there. And so I think that this ellipsis is used pretty good. Pretty well. (laughs) Quote, he ran his hands over a swelling edge, a flat surface. Ellipsis. A flashlight on 295. The ellipsis gives us a moment to sense and identify that the thing that we've discovered with our fingers in the dark is a flashlight. And so that's pretty good. Meantime, ellipsis on 295 suggests Grant has other things to achieve while he's here in the strange closet, like finding that car. And then we have ellipsis past her face, then up along Tim's shoulder, and finally wrapping around his head on 297. The ellipsis here is awesome. Moments before, Tim interrupts us, symbolized by an M-dash, to instruct Lex to stay quiet. What does the tongue have ears? I don't know. And the, and the ellipsis indicates that we're returning from that interruption as the tongue snakes its way up the side of Lex's body and then transfers over to Tim. This scene is written in like a multicam, real-time sort of perspective, I guess. So that's interesting. Timmy! Ellipsis on 297. And this ellipsis is delivered as the Tyrannosaurus pulling Tim back into its jaws. The ellipsis left blank as if she's hoping that there's something that can be done, something that could be said, but she can't think of anything. M-dashes. Quote, it curled, then began to rise like a snake up the side of her body. M-dash on 297. And the M-dash interrupts the tongue's movement with Tim's instructions to no move. Exclamations. Go, go, go! Damn it, go! On 291, orders Muldoon as he dives through the door of the jeep. This is about as life and death as it gets, and once he's clearly into the vehicle, it's time to put the pedal to the metal. And the exclamation marks make it clear. Pull out all the stops. Exclamation. (laughs) Okay, here we go. (laughs) Quote, Wee! Faster! Faster! On 292 exclaims the queen of exclamation. This indicates a tremendous joy that Lex is expressing here, which is incredibly odd for someone who's just been traumatized during this entire journey through the park. And then she exclaims, I can't swim! 
which he told us before, but climbing into a raft and admitting not knowing how to swim is much different than approaching a waterfall and admitting you cannot swim, so that's bad news. Uh, then more exclamations, Dr. Grant! Dr. Grant! exclaims Lex, worried that they're all alone on 296 after he's been uh, locked away behind this mysterious door. <sighs> Come on, Timmy! 298 is Lex yelling some more, and I, I kind of read this as her encouraging him to escape with a you-can-do-it sort of energy, or maybe she's complaining like, come on, quit fooling around? I don't know. After all her terrible dialogue, it's hard to really read what, what quite is being implied by the exclamations and italicis. She's not being supportive at all during this whole book, so it'd be strange to read it in the former way, so maybe you have to read it in the latter. This almost has to be her complaining that Tim is letting a Tyrannosaur eat him. Oh, and that's bad. That's bad writing. Capitalization. Maint 04 on 295 indicates that there is a label on the door, and again, we can tell distinctly that this is a label because it is provided in all capital letters. Maint vehicle 04 slash 22 charger follows, indicating that there may be a charger vehicle or a chargeable vehicle, an electric vehicle, behind uh, the waterfall. So that's convenient for these guys. Form. While falling down the waterfalls and then being washed out into the stream beyond on page 293, Crichton employs a lot of semicolons and commas describing new and precarious moments as Grant is washed away by the force of the water. And though he's not creating run-on sentences, he's intentionally creating longer sentences, extending them through commas and new thoughts as Grant grasps and clambers in the water. And here, the slippery, flowing nature of Grant's predicament, being washed away, is being captured in Crichton's sentence structure as well. This is form and subject and style all connecting. That makes this for very special literature for this moment in the, in the novel. And it'd be absolute poetry if this had any meaning caught up in it, if somehow Crichton had captured the themes of the novel and the American experience of the 1990s in this little moment as well, and married it with the stylistic techniques and literary form. If he'd put all of that together in a moment like this, he'd have been crowned poet laureate. <laughs> but that's getting way ahead of ourselves. Nonetheless, bringing subject and form together into a meaningful experience is more than writing. It's creating art. And it deserves some recognition. And Crichton does this as they, they fall over the waterfalls. And we have tension. Once plunged into darkness, Grant is separated from the kids behind that door, behind the waterfall behind that door. They're left all alone, which he's been risking his life all this time so that they wouldn't be left all alone. He made a promise to these kids, so he needs to find a way back to them on 295. Crichton does a great job raising the tension as he searches for some way to get back through that door. Once he finds the flashlight, he's in good shape, except he hears sniffing and claws scratching at the concrete. Great, there's a dinosaur in the dark with him. And when Tim is being drawn into Rex's big mouth by its tongue, the tension is also really strong. I can't imagine a dinosaur requiring more than a second to put something that's four feet away from his mouth into its own mouth, but apparently Tim must be resisting really well. I don't know how somebody weighs 80 pounds resists something that weighs eight tons. So, I don't know. But Crichton employs many senses to raise the attention and give us, as readers, a taste of what it must be like to be moments away from entering a Tyrannosaurus mouth. We get the awful smell, like urine, the screaming desperation of his sister, the hot breath on his legs, the desperate tugging in both directions, Lex one way and the big Rex the other. I don't, there's no, like, you can't resist eight tons of, of movement, <laughs> no matter how big you are as a person. Uh, Tim digs his heels into the muddy ground, but, but is dragged forward anyhow. Yes, of course he is. Um, it'd be like hanging onto a car. You just If it pull, decides to drive away, it, no amount of digging your feet in is going to stop it. Uh, they're powerless to do anything. Tim is beginning to see stars on 298, and he's passing out, peacefulness overcoming him, inevitability being accepted. It's just so excellent. He was prepared to die. <laughs> it's tough to, to go through as a kid. Horror. 
Quote, Lex was screaming in panic, and then the boat spun, and the rear end dropped away, spilling them out into the air in roaring water, and they fell sickeningly. Grant flailed his arms in the air, and the world suddenly went silent and slow on 293. And as my terrific guest from episode 18, Chris McDonald, said, the horror genre relies on the sense of horror that the characters feel during the story, and the horror the readers are meant to feel while reading. Going over the waterfall is a bit of a cliche in Jungle Adventures, but this paragraph is horror written well. A girl who can't swim. A hero who is powerless to stop their descent. The Tyrannosaur waiting below them. All these things we are strongly encouraged to feel very worried about. So this is horror written well. Literary techniques. Uh, we have some foreshadowing. As we mentioned before, sometimes Crichton needs to slip a reminder about an upcoming plot thread into the narrative so we don't forget anything. So that when we come to stuff later, it's not problematically shocking. Because he does have the Search the Nest mission reappear out of the wild blue yonder without any con connective tissue for hundreds of pages, and it's a problem when you read that part. However, in this chapter, he does remind us that the Velociraptors are incredibly dangerous, formidable villains. Incredibly dangerous and formidable villains. They're, quote, very, very intelligent, says Muldoon, and raptors are smart, very smart. Believe me, all the problems we have so far are nothing compared to what we'd have if the raptors ever got out of their holding pen. So that's some effective foreshadowing, because certainly they're going to get out. <laughs> Metaphors. Quote, he had time to observe the frozen white sheet of the waterfall on page 293, is what we're told of Grant's perspective on the way down the waterfall. This frozen adjective is imagery of a sort, but it's not a simile yet. It's not a great metaphor either. The water won't be still, as frozen would suggest. It perhaps is suggesting that the water appears like a solid sheet or a wall of ice. A frozen white sheet of waterfall. Not a great piece of imagery. Maybe this works for you. If so, then this is a personal failing of my own, but this isn't a great metaphor but that might just be me. Quote, Grant was plunged into total darkness on 295. And this is almost cliche, but it's an effective metaphor. You suddenly are surrounded by darkness as, just as you might be suddenly surrounded by water if you were to be plunged into a lake. So it's totally immersing darkness. So that's good imagery. There's an extended metaphor that a Tyrannosaurus tongue is like a snake, and also that it is like a snake's tongue on 297. The tongue, quote, snaked out of its mouth and has a, quote, little forked indentation in the tip. And it also, quote, curled, then began to rise like a snake up the side of Lex's body. Now, I admit, this last bit is kind of like a simile, but it's an extended metaphor that the tongue is like a snake. So the tongue is like a snake, and it's described that way. Similes, but the tongue is also like a, quote, elephant trunk on 297 with muscular movements. And perhaps we can read the, quote, little indentation at the tip to be like the end of an elephant's trunk more than the bifurcated tip of a snake's tongue. I don't know. All this, quote, snake imagery that it's said to be forked harkens to like a, to a snake-like tongue, but perhaps it has mechanical dexterity of an elephant's trunks. But perhaps it has the mechanical dexterity of the elephant trunk's finger. I, I looked it up, and the tip of the trunk of, a, of an elephant is called a finger. Quote, four cylinders, each the size of a quart milk bottle, were nestled in the foam on two night. 289. To me, as a Canadian, we get our milks in, in bags, which apparently is absolutely ridiculous looking to outsiders, but that's all I know. These flimsy, transparent tubes of milk that we load into pitchers and serve ourselves dairy with uh, are what I grew up with. However, in the rest of the world, milk comes in bottles or cartons, and we have cartons too, but if you have a pitcher, you get a big bag of milk, and with inside that bag, there are three smaller bags of milk inside, just because. Uh, so a quart of milk is not really something I picture with any ease, but who cares? Imagine some slim unit of milk, and that's what uh, these doses of Moro 709 are shaped like. Quote, it has a 
It's as big as your finger with gray markings. On 291, says Maldona, the battery for his laser sight. And yeah, it's a battery. That's what a battery looks like. It's about the shape of your finger. <laughs> so that's an odd an odd simile to get the battery. Oh, it looks like a battery. <laughs> uh, quote, it was starting to feel like an amusement park ride on 292, describes Crichton of the Swift Jungle River. We can imagine how fast and perhaps bumpy this river is therefore feeling. We might, in such an instance, notice the downward slope uh, required to increase the flow at the same time, though perhaps not if they were still surrounded by that dark, thick foliage that surrounds the river. Quote, it was an electric car, like a golf cart on 296. We know what a golf cart looks like, and so can easily imagine that this electric car looks like that. However, if we saw a golf cart looking electric car, wouldn't you just call it like a golf cart from the start? Or at least a maintenance vehicle? Why would you call it a car? Maybe 1990 electric cars <laughs> were, were, were much more obs obscure looking. Drama. So... It's at this point in the novel when Lex says she doesn't want to go into the shelter behind the waterfalls in 295 that it becomes absolutely clear that she's being deployed, perhaps even weaponized by Crichton, exclusively as a mechanism of drama. She's that friend that everybody rolls their eyes at because they're always bringing all the drama into every situation. But literally, this is Lex. She talks with too much attitude. She fights against every course of action. She has tantrums and refuses to listen. She's tough but terrified. Every action you might want to take, she is designed by Crichton to interfere with you doing. Hey Lex, new plan, hear me out. It's to not be eaten by a dinosaur today. She'd ask why and whine while she asked and, and then have some passive aggressive thing about her daddy having a better plan. Lex is a real villain in this novel. She's worse than a tyrannosaur. Stay here. No, don't leave us. Okay, then come with me. <laughs> Get in the raft. No, the Rex is there. Get in the boat. I can't swim. Don't cough. She apparently is always coughing at the wrong time. Can we eat these berries? No, quick. Get out of here so the Tyrannosaur doesn't eat us. Okay, but where? Okay, quick. Get in the shelter with me. Forget it. I'm not going in there. We crack the code here, folks. Gennaro contrivedly provokes exposition, and Lex contrivedly provokes drama. At least when Arnold is provoking drama, it's because he, it's his job to worry about things. But Lex is just there to make getting around harder for our heroes. And she does that. She makes things harder for the readers, too. All right, here we have an element of deus ex machina, maybe. We should discuss the conclusion to the Rex attack at the waterfall and specifically address whether or not we believe it is the use of deus ex machina. Literally, literarily, deus ex machina is when there's a forced or improbable device by which a hard-pressed author resolves a plot. Oh, say a character has accepted their inevitable death, only to have the Tyrannosaurus suddenly stop, sparing them their life. You can see how this resembles Deus Ex Machina. An improbable device resolves the plot. However, it's not out of the blue, but rather Crichton crafted this the plot this way. The entire scene with Gennaro and Muldoon was designed to make this work. So this either is Crichton with full intentions to use Deus Ex Machina and built it in believably, or it's not Deus Ex Machina at all, and it just kind of resembles it. I don't know what to say other than Tim and Lex are saved by the grace of God when the Tyrannosaurus simply stops eating them at the very last moment when it passes out. And frankly, it's well written. It's cool. And maybe also it's a piece of Deus Ex Machina. But the, the, the Rex was tranquilized. It just took him a while to feel it. <sighs> and it was plotted to be tranquilized. So, I don't know. Crichton deserves some cred for that part. 
All right, let's have a bit more discussion on other things in this chapter that uh, came to mind. We have the dinosaurs. Muldoon compares firing tranquilizer into elephants, rhinoceroses, and hippos, but admits these are mammalian analogs, and comparing them to dinosaurs isn't fair on 290. Now, I've been arguing this all through the novel, and Crichton is admitting it too. Dinosaurs are strange, and to think they simply acted like mammals because mammals are what we have to compare them to is not as imaginative, imaginative as I'd have perhaps preferred my dinosaurs to be conceived. Quote, we know a lot about the big mammalian attractions, lions, tigers, bears, elephants. We know a lot less about reptiles, and nobody knows anything about dinosaurs. The dinosaurs are new animals, admits Muldoon. He admits dinosaurs don't fit existing categories. He doesn't consider them reptiles, but they are as variable as mammals are today. Some are cute and tame. Some are mean and nasty. Some see well, others don't. Some are stupid. Some are very smart. In terms of our timeline, it is now nearly 10 a.m., we're told on page 294. Uh, this is just an hour left before the raptors reach the mainland. So uh, we can imagine that that plot will be resolved in the next hour. A lot happens in the next hour on the island. Believe me, I know. For once we have someone say, believe me, and what they say isn't entirely wrong. Quote, believe me, all the problems we have so far are nothing compared to what we'd have if the raptors ever got out of their holding pen, says Muldoon on page 290. Holy cow. This may literally be the only time in this whole novel someone says these words and they are believable. That said, usually, Crichton has someone say something like this to end an argument, which he is not doing here. Here, Maldon is at his doomsaying best, forewarning that the raptors are the park's biggest problem. Even when they're in captivity, they're his greatest concern. Crichton tropes. In this chapter, the Tyrannosaur emerges at the bottom of the waterfall with Lex's life vest in its jaws. Again, we're led to believe that the Tyrannosaur has eaten Lex. Recall during the Tyrannosaur attack back with the land cruisers when Grant overhears Lex screaming, and he and Malcolm watch the Rex lower its head. And then her screaming ends. That was on page 189. This is the second time the Tyrannosaur has ducked her head and led us to believe that it has eaten Lex. Crichton's turning into the boy who cried wolf a little bit here. Thankfully, we don't have to wait a few chapters to find out that she's just hiding in a drain pipe because she bobs to the surface almost right afterwards on 293. All right, we have some contrivances of plot. I don't like bringing these up because they kind of ruin the story for me, but here we go. <sighs> on the dirt path... By the river that seems to lead behind the waterfall, Grant spots a man's shoe print in the dirt, indicating people walk on this path on page 294. Recall, it's the first thing in the morning, and there had been a tropical storm last night. Any footprints in this dirt path should have been washed away, unless someone was out here for a stroll first thing this morning before the cleanup and animal relocation got started. So this just seems like an overlooked detail that Crichton threw in that doesn't hold up to closer in scrutiny, right? Okay, so the gray metal door located behind the waterfalls is password protected, but also security card protected, and also has an electric spring, which snaps shut once, once it is open on page 295. This is absurd. Who is trespassing behind the waterfalls in Jurassic Park? Why must this strange door behind a waterfall be spring-loaded to snap shut just in case it were opened? You know how I like my doors? I like them, like, when I open them, to stay open and like when i shut them i like them to stay shut if they're shutting when i want them open or opening when i want them shut i do not like those doors that's not how i want my doors to operate i would get the doors fixed but this is how this door is designed which is terrible i can't imagine an imaginative person and creative writer who dreams up this sort of thing these types of doors exist in my nightmares why does it need a security card who are they protecting this machinery from 
Why does it also need a passcode on top of the security card access? It's being protected from a very specific type of person, I guess, who isn't given a password or a security card, but would be out there. I don't know. Let's talk a bit more about what this door is granting access to. This is a, quote, little closet space, but apparently it contains, quote, big filters and pipes. If they... If they are pipes big enough to filter the flow of water equivalent to a waterfall's quantity of water, they must be enormous pipes, similar to what Lex was hiding in under the road before. But does that fit into a closet space? No, that's bigger than a closet. These big pipes make no sense. What is being filtered? This isn't a pool. This isn't potable water. And it's after the water has left the lagoon, so it's not filtering the water for the lagoon man-made lake or anything like that. It's, it's filtering water as it exits the island into the ocean, maybe? Just the whole setup makes no sense. And, okay, and then behind the waterfall is a subterranean roadway with a charged vehicle abandoned in the dark. Authorized personnel reach this door by a car that they drive inside an underground roadway. Now we're told throughout the novel that the, there are roadways that are below ground level, but I imagine that you know, that just meant that they were perhaps dug into like eight foot ditches so that they don't obstruct the view of something like the dinosaurs, like the one between the sauropod maintenance building and the lagoon dock. That was below ground, but level, but not underground. So like while you're walking or driving in them, you can still see the sky. There is no ceiling. And this whole scene gets even more weirdly contrived than it already is. Here we go. Grant finds that the door has no way to open from, uh, but from the outside, the kids will have to figure out how it works. So there's a dark, unlit tunnel. There are no lights except this flashlight, and there are no light switches. It is a dark tunnel that's behind a locked door that can only be opened from the outside. And there's a vehicle parked here in the dark in the tunnel who abandoned this golf cart here and then wandered off into the dark. <laughs> they can't exit through the door. It's locked from the outside and cannot be opened from the inside. The whole thing is absent of logic. Once again, I cannot imagine a creative writer with good imagination writing this. It's so... I don't get it. All right, moving on. Park management. This is the first time I really paid attention to this part of the novel with the Halliburton case and the tranquilizer they fired into the big wrecks. I recall that they fired a trank dart at it and that it looked like a gray tubing and a rocket launcher, but I don't know. I always pictured they just fired a rifle with a dart, but that's not what is described here. Okay, this is a heavy-duty weapon. There are four doses of the tranquilizer labeled Moro 709. Recall Grant found a trank dart that was labeled Moro 12. Uh, what Grant had is likely a smaller gauge dart than the one that we see here. This one is big. The bottles are the size of a quart of milk. To fire them into an eight-ton tyrannosaur, the doses must be screwed onto a needle. The head of the needle is the diameter of Gennaro's finger. That would leave a hole <laughs> if it struck anything but a huge animal. There's a circular lead weight which plunges the dose into the dinosaur upon impact. So they think of it like a syringe, I guess. To fire this bottle at the Tyrannosaur, they require an air rifle, but it looks like a bazooka or a rocket launcher. And surely it is. If they're firing ordnance the size of a bottle. So imagine like getting a, getting a jug of Fago and just launching that thing at a dinosaur. So that's how big these, the, 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 the weapon is. I hadn't thought of it before. I always just figured it was like a little trank dart, like you've seen um, The End of the Lost World. Movie adaptations. This chapter has a couple elements that were directly adapted into Jurassic Park, but also into The Lost World as well. Nothing specifically directly, but definitely plucked out of this context and inserted into the films because they're very dramatic and they're well-imagined. To start the Tyrannosaur chase, the, uh, the Tyrannosaur chases the Jeep for a bit on page 291, and this was adapted into the film just a little. 
as well, Lex is resuscitated by Grant, which is very similar to Tim being resuscitated by Grant in the film after the electric fence. And when Lex yells that she hates the Tyrannosaur behind the waterfall, this is a direct quote from The Lost World when Nick Van Owen and the rest of the team are being attacked by the Tyrannosaur in the film as well. It's a different film, but it's a direct adaptation. So that's kind of neat. Similarities. Muldoon and the Jeep are escaping the Tyrannosaur that's pursuing them. It closes in on them rapidly. In the rearview mirror, they see the Tyrannosaur. The Tyrannosaur gives a final roar, and it turns away, and the chase isn't very long. Um, that's similar to what we see in the film. Grant and the kids are escaping a hazard, and the youngest child is re rendered unconscious. Grant desperately works to resuscitate the child while their sibling cries in distress and sadness. That is the same in both the book and the film. And the Rex's jaws smash through the waterfall in search for people to eat. And a trapped character yells, like, hate him at the Jaws, and there's a lot of snakiness. <laughs> That's both in The Lost World and in this chapter as well. But there are differences. In the novel, this is in the morning while they're out trying to capture the big Rex to collect her and return her to her own paddock. In the film, this scene is in the night, and they're being chased away from the site of the Land Cruiser attack. In the novel, it's Gennaro driving with Muldoon over an uneven field. In the film, it's Muldoon driving Sattler and Malcolm along the main road. In the novel, Grant resuscitates Lex, whereas in the film he resuscitates Tim. In the novel, they escape a waterfall, whereas in the film, it's an electric fence. And obviously, in the novel, it's the fear of drowning, while in the film, it's electrocution. In the novel, Lex survives to go on unchanged and continue to be a terrible, obnoxious source of unending drama to the story, whereas Tim is awesomely transformed into Big Tim, the human piece of toast. In the novel, Lex yells at the Tyrannosaurus Jaws that she hates him. Whereas in the film, The Lost World, is Nick Van Owen who yells that he hates the Tyrannosaurus head that's bursting through the waterfall. In the book, the tongue moves like a snake, and the tip is bifurcated like a snake's tongue, whereas in the film, a snake appears out of the rocks and scares paleontologist Dr. Robert Burke into the Rex's jaws. Uh, in the novel, the Tyrannosaur stops attacking because it is tranquilized and goes to sleep. In the film, the Tyrannosaur stops attacking because it catches someone and eats them. I guess in The Lost World. I'm not sure why it stops then. Weren't there two Tyrannosaurs in that scene? So this is a memorable and important scene in the novel. It has terrific flaws, but terrific action as well. And it's been mined for cinematic inspiration in multiple ways, clearly. And it's for good reason. But, like, the contrived material surrounding this waterfall and maintenance shed is god-awful. Like, perhaps Jurassic World Dominion is being authentically adapted from the source material because, let's be for real, we all love the novel, but there are some ridiculous, awful moments that are sorely contrived to keep the plot moving forward. That's in the source text. And perhaps it deserves some recognition that these tales of unending pursuit from dinosaurs in a modern world are very challenging to cobble together, even for masters like Spielberg and for Crichton. But let's leave on a good note. <laughs> we love this chapter. It's very, very memorable. I wouldn't have this novel without it, that's for sure. I want to sign off today thanking my special guest, Jim Kirkland. Jim, amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line. We can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Uh, the Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Inventory, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook, facebook.com slash springchickencapers, or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Hey, if you go to the Facebook page and like it, I'm really close to hitting a milestone, and I might get new analytics if you do. 
So even if it, for no better reason than just see what happens. Uh, thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. Also not that too. Thanks for everything, guys. Until next time.